Well, please uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 85. I'd remind you that as we work through the series in Job, we are also jumping we're so often into the Psalms, and this morning we come to Psalm 85, a Psalm of the Sons of Korah. Hear God's word as I read Psalm 85. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Perhaps you are discouraged currently in your life. Does the life you are now living perhaps have less joy than it has in the past? Especially as you contemplate that time when you first became a Christian, do you look back and think of that time and long for the return of what you consider to have been a happier time, a time when you felt closer to the Lord than you do now? The hymn writer John Wesley knew about times like this, and he wrote, asking, where is the joy I knew when I first saw the Lord? Doesn't it seem that sometimes life, specifically the Christian life, gets harder all the time? We naturally think that, or perhaps long, to believe that the longer we are a Christian, the fewer struggles we will have, and yet the opposite seems to be the case. We realize more and more how sin yet clings to us, how easily we fall into temptations, giving in to even the same sins. As uh, progress takes place, yes, but it seems so slow. And the progress we see is only the beginning of what we would like to see happen in us and to us. There are many reasons why we become discouraged as Christians, our own personal spiritual progress or lack of progress, but also the afflictions and troubles of this life that we feel like bog us down. There are trying circumstances and problems that plague us, tending toward discouragement, heartache, and worry. And what we fail to realize is that it is our own need for spiritual progress uh, that explains why we must go through these negative things. They are part of God's plan in order to change us for the better. But it's one thing to know the truth and another thing to know it in the heart. We know as believers that all things work together for good for those who love God, and yet it doesn't always seem that way. It isn't easy for us to accept the trials and tribulations that come our way. It isn't always easy for us to learn um, lessons from them. 
And the Lord's chastening ends up being so painful because we are so stubborn and hard-headed. The Lord's will is to bring us to the point where we cry out to him for relief. When you become discouraged and even depressed, when you feel downtrodden, the Lord's design is that you will turn to him for help. And that's what's happening in this psalm. This psalm is recording the spiritual struggle of God's people as they long for a return of joy. And this is happening in the context of a time of trial. And following the spiritual journey of of the psalmist here, we must reflect, first of all, on the salvation we have and what that means for us in the midst of trials and tribulations. The psalm is a request for love, for mercy from the Lord to show us once again the joy and prosperity of being right with him. There's also a reminder here that we cannot expect joy in the Christian life apart from turning from sin. We sing the song, Trust and Obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And that is what we want, isn't it? To be happy in Jesus. And Psalm 85 is a prayer for a return to such happiness. Now, there's nothing in the title of this psalm that would indicate what the historical situation was lying behind it. The title simply says to the the, uh, choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. And yet the content of this psalm would lead us to believe that this psalm is from that period of time shortly after the return of the Jews from their 70 years of captivity in Babylon. Notice how verse 1 refers to a recent restoration of the people. It says, you restored the fortunes of Jacob. And uh, then there is in verses 4 through 7 a prayer for a new time of restoration and revival, which would also fit that period of time following their return to the land from captivity. For remember the hardships and the opposition that they faced once back home as they sought to rebuild their lives and specifically as they sought to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and the temple. Now we don't know for with absolute certainty that this is the historical situation that lies behind this psalm. There are some scholars who, who doubt that That is the situation, but even if it's not, what happened to those exiles after their return from Babylon is an illustration, at the very least, of the struggle and discouragement of which this psalm speaks. So I would suggest that it's fitting to recall the main events of that history. Um, Cyrus, the king of Persia, in 538 BC, allowed the first Jews to return to Jerusalem, and we read of that in the book of Ezra. And the foundations of the temple were laid immediately, but then lay dormant for some 14 to 18 years. And then through the urgings of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the temple was completed. Somewhere along the line, the Jews began to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, only to find the work very difficult, long and discouraging. Especially when their enemies destroyed the little progress they had made and burned the city's gates. And so you can picture the struggle. When they first returned to the land, you can imagine there was great joy and excitement. And the first three verses of this psalm would definitely have been their confession. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. They were experiencing 
the Lord's favor after a great period of judgment. And there was repentance. And the people were allowed to return. But then everything seemed to change once again. No sooner had things been going their way and everything broke down again. And so they were overcome with discouragement and even despair in some cases. In the opening chapter of Nehemiah, it is recorded that the people openly acknowledged that they were in great trouble and disgrace. What are God's people to do in such circumstances? What do you do? What should you do? Well, you must pray and you must wait for God's answer. You would do well to pray this psalm. And if the historical setting of this psalm is the return from exile, then this prayer was answered in the sending of Nehemiah to rebuild the walls, to reconstitute the nation, and to bring back once again the joy and vitality of their salvation. So let's look at this psalm from the perspective of how we are to pray when we are discouraged. And hopefully this psalm, by God's grace, will lift you from spiritual depression to new levels of rejoicing. And the psalm is naturally broken down into four sections. And uh, let's consider these as four steps toward new joy. And the first step in overcoming discouragement is to reflect on God's goodness to you in past days. We need to get back on our feet. We want to feel solid ground under us again. And it's helpful to ask, what do we know for sure about ourselves as God's people? What do we know that God has done for us? The psalmist in verses 1 through 3 lays out where you always ought to begin when you are discouraged. First of all, no matter what's happening, you know that God has been gracious to you in the past. You must acknowledge the truth that God has been favorable to you. He has kept his promises to you. The promise to Israel was to give them a land, and God kept that promise. And even though they were gone in exile for a number of years, he brought them back to that land. And of course, the whole purpose was in order that eventually he would bring the Messiah forth. But he brought them back. The exile was not the end. And has the Lord been faithful to you in the past? You know he has. Don't look at the present for now. Maybe he doesn't seem faithful in your experience and how you feel at the moment, but forget about that for now. Will you acknowledge that he has been true to you in the past? I've never known a true believer who would not acknowledge God's mercy and grace in the past. And so begin there. Look back on your life. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Think about what you really deserve from God and what instead he has chosen to do. Uh, and, 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 and you will come to a renewed realization that God has been good to you. And as you think about the Lord's goodness, at the heart of all of that should be your salvation in Christ. Reflect during times of trial on your salvation. The psalmists write there in verse 2, you forgave the iniquity of your people, you covered all their sin, you withdrew all your wrath, you turned from your hot anger. And so the psalmists are reminding God's people of God's grace in forgiving sin, Forgiving your sin because there's nothing more encouraging and, and nothing more that you need to be reminded of than despite what's happening, you have been forgiven. You are loved by the Lord. You are, you are right with the Lord by grace. 
Do you know that your sins have been forgiven, that they've been covered? That's a, a great word. Remember this word. If you're covered, that means God does not look at your sins anymore. He doesn't see them so as to be angered by them. It's a word that speaks of atonement. It speaks of, of being shielded from God's wrath. If you have been forgiven, God's wrath has been taken away. God has turned from the fierceness of his anger that otherwise would be present, right? Because our sins do deserve the wrath and curse of God. We know that this is true, that apart from this covering, we would be in trouble because unforgiven, unconfessed sin, uncovered sin always brings God's wrath. And notice that the salvation that is here is salvation by grace, Verses 1, 2, and 3 are focusing on what God has done. It is God who has forgiven. God has taken away even his own wrath. He's done it, we know, in the way of repentance, yes, but a repentance that God works in the hearts of his people. And of course, ultimately, we are forgiven on the basis, on the ground of Jesus' saving work. God took away his own wrath by coming in the person of Jesus Christ, dying upon the cross, they're satisfying the wrath that should have been unleashed upon us. And so when you are discouraged, put your faith and trust in Christ. Look to him in faith. Remind yourself of the forgiveness of your sins. That is yours in him. Remind yourself that God's wrath, his, his fierce anger has been taken care of by Christ. By God's own design, by God's own grace. That's where you must begin. For our hope is in God, not in ourselves, not in our own righteousness. And in times of trouble, as believers turn to God, who is your Savior in Jesus Christ. And then the next thing that you must do in, in times of distress is turn to your Lord with requests for restoration and revival. These requests, such as are recorded in verses 4 through 7. Really here, asking God to do two things. Um, first of all, restore us. The psalmist says in verse 4, literally turn us. And then there's also a request in verse 6 for revival. Lord, revive us. In verses 4 through 7, the psalmists are asking God for relief from tribulations. Um, really, they are taking up here the subject of, of chastisements, which God has inflicted upon them. I'd have you remember the, the comfort of verses 1 through 3 and then knowing that God has forgiven your sins in Christ. The problems that you experience now as believers you know cannot be due to God's wrath and fierce anger, but must be the anger of chastisement or discipline, which the Bible says comes to us actually in love. But you notice how there appears to be a contradiction as we go from the first section, verses 1 through 3, until the, into the second section of verses 4 through 7. Because in verse 3, it says there that God has withdrawn all of his wrath. He's turned from his hot anger. But now in verse 4, the psalmist is asking that God would put away his indignation toward us. So what's going on here? Well, the psalmist clearly has a distinction in his mind between two types of anger. In the third verse, the word wrath speaks of this overflowing rage or, or fury. And then 
at the end of verse 3, there's mention there not of just anger, but of hot or fierce anger, a Hebrew word that, that carries the idea of heat and of burning. So clearly there in verse 3, the psalmist is referring to that wrath of God that is unleashed against unrepentant sinners, living in rebellion, living um, in, in a state of, of, of uh, refusing to repent of sin. He's speaking of that wrath of God that is against those who are not trusting in Christ, who are therefore not covered and who are not forgiven. But now in Christ for you, believer, that wrath is gone. That's the wrath that Christ took, that he bore once and for all on the cross. And that's why the psalmist there in verse 3 says that God has withdrawn all of his wrath, that he has turned from his hot anger. That hot anger is what we deserve, but in Christ, because he has washed away our sins, there's no longer that wrath for us. The psalmist is talking about justification, right? That God has forgiven our sins. He's declared us righteous in his sight. So then what's the anger of verses 4 and 5? An anger that still is apparently coming against us as God's people. Well, there are two different words in the Hebrew translated as anger or indignation. In verse 4, the word there means anger, but also carries the idea of vexation, of grief, of frustration. In verse 5, will you be angry with us forever? The idea is that God is displeased, no doubt, but not full of fierce, hot wrath. The last part of verse 5 is the same word as verse 3, but without that word hot. So this is not a uh, uh, an anger that's associated with heat and burning. And so our conclusion from this is that in verses 4 and 5, the psalms are talking about an anger of chastisement, of, of judgment that comes against us as God's people because we still, as God's people, do things displeasing to him. Um, you should not be surprised that God is displeased with your sin. Um, just because our sins are forgiven in Christ and just because God in wrath is not going to condemn us to everlasting destruction doesn't mean that it's okay now to sin. God is highly displeased when we sin, even righteously anger when we sin. And the psalmist, as he considered the trials that he and God's people were going through, was crying out for relief. Sometimes the trials and the problems of our lives are because God is angry with sin in our lives, and he's calling us to repentance. And the psalmist realized that, for he says at the beginning of verse 4, literally, turn us. That's what when our, our, the ESV says, restore us, but it says, turn us, convert us. He's essentially saying, change us, turn us from the path of sin. Do you realize that there is sin in your life that provokes the Lord to anger? We feel the Lord's chastisements in times of trial, and we cry out for, for relief, but the Lord's not going to relent until we change. That's why we're being chastised in the first place. God is calling us to wake up and to see our sin. And he wants us to feel the sting of his rod so that we repent. And yet, so often we ask for relief from our problems without also asking the Lord to turn us. Rather than simply asking for relief, what the Lord wants us to ask for is that he would change us, that we would be turned from sin. As you face the Lord's chastening, are you ready to confront those areas in your life that need to change? And there always are in this life going to be such. 
Notice the truth here that we can't change ourselves. You're not being told here to do your best to fight sin in your own strength. You are to pray to the Lord to turn you. You must ask the Lord to cause you to see the sin in your life and to enable you to turn and to go in a different direction. And also, you are to ask the Lord to revive you. The, the psalmists speak of both turning and revival because it's not enough simply to turn away from sin. But we need to be radically changed so that we begin to do the Lord's will. And when you know how far you are from being where you should be spiritually, you pray for the Lord to revive you, literally to resurrect or to make you alive. The real reason you are discouraged in your Christian life is not because of bad circumstances in your life. The problem is sin. The problem is that we are by nature dead spiritually and we need the Lord to revive us, to resurrect us, to make us alive, to quicken us. Now that happened in a fundamental, uh, principial way through your regeneration, through your new birth. But we're not finished needing revival, needing this renewal. We need the Lord to work in us that we take our spiritual lives seriously so that we openly and consistently live for Christ. And the fruit of that revival, you see, will be joy. Will you not revive us again? That, there's the purpose, that your people may rejoice in you. Not just rejoice in pleasant circumstances, but rejoice in you. When you are living obediently before God, there will be joy in your life And this is not anything that we can do by ourselves. We turn to God to revive us. Our good works, our best intentions to reform and to do better next time, these things won't return the joy of the Lord. Remember, we deserve the Lord's wrath and fierce anger. And so plead for his steadfast love. Verse 7, show us your steadfast love, O Lord. Cause us to experience once again the joy of your salvation. Pray that he will come to you, that he will turn you, that he will revive you, that he will show you once again what it is to experience the fellowship, right? That's what it's talking about here, the fellowship of of being in favor with the Lord. The Lord is saying your life must be placed in his hands. Notice how clearly the psalmist understands that only the Lord can bring about the joy that he seeks. For moving on to the next section, verses 8 and following, he speaks really of waiting on the Lord. He says, let me hear what God the Lord will speak. He's just prayed for turning and revival. He's put out these requests. He's made clear these needs. And he says, let me hear what God the Lord will speak. This is the faith of waiting trustfully. And uh, notice that the psalmist is sure that God will speak peace to his people, to his saints. We pray and we wait. We wait for the Lord's work in our lives through his spirit, believing that God will bring the comfort of the Holy Spirit, that he will restore and revive us as is best for us. Nevertheless, also notice that waiting doesn't mean that we just simply wait for God to act while we do nothing um, or, we do, or do whatever we want. No, the, the, the psalmist, the, the sons of Korah, are very adamant that you must resist the old ways of sin 
Notice the second part of verse 8, but let them not turn back to folly. Yes, wait upon the Lord. Wait and, and, and wait for Him to speak and to accomplish His will. But in the meantime, don't turn back to folly. The person who prays to God for joy and peace in his life and yet refuses to repent, or worse yet, continues to live in sin is praying in vain. If you want peace and joy, you must pray for turning and revival, and you must mean it. There must be a true hatred of sin in your life and a love for God. There must be a determination to stay away from the former paths of folly. Notice his salvation, verse 9, surely his salvation is near those who fear him, which means by implication his salvation is not near those who do not fear him. If you love the Lord, reverencing him, fearing him as your gracious God, you will seek to do his will. And the Lord will cause you to experience the blessings of being in close fellowship. There's no fear of God. There's no concern over the sin in your life. No desire to please God. And there's this persistence in sin that's void of any sorrow. Then don't expect God's salvation to be near. Don't expect to experience the joy and peace of being right with God. Are you one of the many professing Christians today who mock God by living how you want and then complain when God brings chastisement. To be happy in Jesus, you must trust and obey. And I'm talking about an obedience out of love, out of a reverence for the Lord, out of a fear of the Lord. Verse 9 really carries us into the thought of the final verses of this psalm. God's salvation is near to those who fear him because in the midst of the chastisements and troubles of this life, God still loves his people. The the sons of Korah in these last verses are drawn to the hope that we have in God, a, a hope that allows us to rise above the heartaches of this life, and a hope that is all about this this salvation that is ours in Christ. And we like the psalmist um, psalmists, we, we need these words of encouragement, this final boost. Um, Really, these verses are at the heart of the encouragement we need because they assure us that our salvation is all of grace. They assure us that salvation is all of God and nothing of us. Like the psalmist, you must face the question of how and why God saves sinners. How can God in his justice rightly love those that his law says deserve his wrath? How can we be saved when God's wrath and fierce anger burns against our sin? Here in these last verses, we see the Lord Jesus Christ as the answer, though he is certainly veiled in an Old Testament way. Our salvation lies in God. Our salvation does not lie in ourselves. It doesn't depend upon us finally getting our lives together. Our salvation doesn't even depend upon us finally learning from our chastisements. Because of our sin, we're going to be chastised in various ways until our dying day. Our salvation and our hope for the future lies in God. Because as the psalmists say, there in God, steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other. It's one of the most beautiful verses in all of Scripture. It's very poetic, but especially because of how the gospel 
is here in these, in, in these words in this verse. For we understand in these words both what we deserve as sinners and how God has enabled us to experience his love. Love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace have kissed. As we think of the faithfulness of God, your translation might have the word truth there. Um, it's talking about what God has said in his word. It's talking about faith, the faithfulness of God to keep his promises, that what he has said is true. And he has said that, that, uh, that his covenant people will experience his salvation, even though we deserve his wrath, that he, speaking now in Old Testament terms, is going to provide the Christ who will enable us to escape the wrath of God. But God's also faithful to his word in declaring that those who refuse to repent will be destroyed and who will face his white-hot anger. And according to God's righteousness, which is mentioned in verse 10, that's God's holy standard. According to that, we should be destroyed. Faithfulness and righteousness then bring to mind the justice of God that says that we should be punished in, for our sins in judgment, but in God, righteousness and peace have kissed. Love and faithfulness meet. Um, God is a God not just of words, but a God of action. And even though righteous and just, God grants us his love and peace. How is this? How can he do this and still remain the just and righteous God that he is? Well, it's through Christ. Out of love for us, he has punished his son in our place. He has enabled us to know love and peace by satisfying his own justice. He sent his fierce wrath and his anger against his own son, Jesus Christ, so that it's in Christ that righteousness, that is the justice of God, as well as peace, love that, that unites us with, Christ, with, uh, with God through Christ. These kiss each other as close friends, working together in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God provides us with his own righteousness. Verses 11 through 13 speak of the spiritual blessings that God gives us. He looks down at us from heaven. And he provides what he needs for us. I think it's, it's pictured here um, these spiritual blessings are pictured in terms of, of fruitfulness in the land, that in the Old Testament times, right, the fruitfulness of the land was a picture of the people's relationship with the Lord. When their relationship with the Lord prospered, the land prospered. And so it is that here we have um, the, the, the psalmist pointing out that even in this life we experience God's blessings and uh, Without God's love in Christ, there would really be no chance of us ever experiencing anything but wrath because God is a righteous God. He's a God who will keep his promises to punish all sin. But of course, he's punished our sins in the Lord Jesus Christ. And through Jesus Christ's work and merits, God works faith in us. He makes us righteous. And so any blessings that we are able to experience from a righteous God are due to God's work in us, based on Christ's work. And so essentially salvation comes down to us from heaven. Faithfulness springs up from the ground. Righteousness looks down from the sky, from a righteous God whose wrath has been satisfied. Imagine a righteous God 
who's blessing these sinners down on earth. It's because we're justified in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's God's grace freely given that gives us hope for the future. What's encouraging is to know God's love through his son. And so like the psalmist, we can look into the future and know with absolute confidence, yes, the Lord is going to give us what is good. Verse 12, and our land will yield its increase. Again, in Old Testament terms, saying we're going to know the Lord's favor. We know his fellowship. We know that he is with us. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Yes, our God is righteous. Righteousness goes before him. Everything that he does is in righteousness, and yet he makes his footsteps away for us, a way that we can walk. This is talking about how the Lord not only justifies us, but he sanctifies us. He gives us the ability to begin to follow his footsteps, to follow his law, that we can then experience his blessings. It's really only in the way of obedience that we can experience the the experience of close fellowship with God, and it's a great gift of God, is it not, that not only does he work righteousness, um, or I should say declare us to be righteous in his sight, but he works, also works righteousness in us, so that we can follow in his steps. God never lowers the standard of righteousness, but he in grace enables us to follow his paths. And in the way of obedience that he works in us, we are enabled to rejoice in the Lord. Are you trusting in the Lord? If he is your only hope of salvation, then seek his restoration. Again, remember that word is the word for turning. Seek his turning, that he would turn you from sin and that he would revive you, that there would be revival so that you will follow his steps of righteousness. To be happy in Jesus, you must trust and obey. But even for the obedient part, uh, you must rely on God. Do you want to obey God? That's a searching question that we should all be able to answer in the affirmative. Yes, we want to obey God. Do you want to live a life that pleases him? Yes. Well, the motivation of that should not be to earn salvation or God's favor. The right motivation is love for God. Yes, God, I want to obey you for the grace because of the grace you've shown me in Christ. I want to enjoy close fellowship with you. And so you must look to him to sanctify you. Understanding you've already been justified in Christ. Your sins have already been covered. But look to him also for that sanctification. Pray, Lord, turn me from sin. Revive me through your Holy Spirit, giving me increasing spiritual life. And then I will rejoice in you. The rejoicing is in God. It is close fellowship with our righteous God. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for, even though he is not here in this psalm mentioned by name, yet he is everywhere here. We thank you that in him righteousness and peace kiss each other as the holy standard of your righteousness is met even as you create peace with us through his atoning work. 
Lord, we thank you for the forgiveness of our sins. We thank you, Father, that the trials of this life, um, many of which are chastening, are sent in love. Yes, you are displeased. But, Father, we thank you for uh, this chastening that, that is meant to bring us to repentance. And, Father, we pray that, indeed, this chastening work would have its intended effect. Lord, turn us. And, Lord, revive us. Lord, we pray that there would be um, uh, very clearly a, a work going on in our lives where we are turning from sin and, and, and living for you, following it in your footsteps. And Lord, may we never lose sight of what an amazing thing it is that we would be in fellowship with you, a righteous God, and that, Father, we would even be able to begin uh, to obey your law. Um, thank you, Father, for this work of your grace in our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.